We've been making the rounds around the churches in Asia, seven churches. We are, we've done five of them. We're doing number six tonight and then one more to go. Tonight we'll be at the church of Philadelphia. Not this Philadelphia, not with the Liberty Bell. No, that, that's the wrong Philadelphia. The Philadelphia we're talking about is ancient city right in here. So, um, John is writing from Patmos. He's made the rounds, Ephesus, Smyrna, up into Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, now to Philadelphia, uh, and then the last city will be Laodicea the next time we, we come. But for today, we, we are in the city of Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is an interesting town. All the rest of these have been around for hundreds or thousands of years. Uh, they have this long, rich history, some of them very long and very rich history. All sorts of different things. We learned last time at Sardis that it's been overrun several times because they just neglected to protect the city. Um, Philadelphia is a very interesting story. When it was established, it was established only in around sometime between 150 and 180 BC. So it's only a, I mean, it's only a couple hundred years old by the time John writes to it. But even in the first couple of centuries of its life, it had already made a big impact. A lot of this area um, was known as Lydia uh, in this general area in here. In the area of Lydia, when Philadelphia was founded, they had their own language that everybody spoke. By the time John writes this letter, in fact, even before that, during the lifetime of Christ, the Lydian language was extinct. They had all started speaking Greek because of the influence of the city of Philadelphia. It was called a missionary city because its purpose was to spread Greek culture around to its neighbors. And that's exactly what it had done. It had done it so effectively that the Lydian language was no longer spoken within a couple hundred years of Philadelphia's founding. Philadelphia was a city, um, as I said, that had kind of an interesting history, but not so so long back. The one major thing that's important historically that happens in Philadelphia is an earthquake. Around AD 17, during the life of Christ, there is an earthquake in Philadelphia. It The tremors are felt all, just about all the cities uh, uh, that we've talked about could feel the tremors. But in Philadelphia, they were the closest to the epicenter. And so it was really bad there. The city was destroyed. And for even three years after, you could still feel aftershocks from this earthquake. It was a major deal. And you can imagine the psychological toll that happens every time the ground starts to shake a little bit. Fear going back to AD 17. Going back to that earthquake that destroyed your home. I mean, you had just... You had just really gotten back on your feet, just really gotten back to work, just really gotten your life back together when it's shaking again. So you can imagine the the unrest that happens in the city of Philadelphia. And we know there was a, a synagogue there. We know that there was a church there. And it's to this church that we find Jesus through the Apostle John writing. The um, Not much remains of the ancient ruins um, this is a picture of the theater. Yeah, there's hardly anything there. Obviously, this house is is uh, not not from that time. I mean, this is basically the foundation of the theater. That's all that's left. So in um, Sardis, I believe it was, with this massive 
um, theater up on the hill, or not Sardis, uh, which one was it? I can't remember which one it was. They had the massive, um, it may have been Pergamum or Thyatira, but had that massive theater right on the hill. Um, nothing like that here. About the only thing, and this is kind of cool, this was even from this time period, but this is an important aspect of the, the city's history. After um, after the Roman Empire fell, the Byzantine Empire uh, ruled over this area, kind of the Eastern Roman Empire, for well over a thousand years. And finally, the Turks fought and fought and fought. The Ottomans fought and fought and fought. And it took them a couple of centuries of fighting back and forth to finally capture the city of Philadelphia. But even still today, you can see the basis of the arch of St. John's Church, St. John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher from the 5th century. These were some of the pillars holding up what was probably the central dome of the church. Even in the Middle Ages, this city had a profound impact on its area. One of the last cities to fall to the Ottomans. Let's listen to what Jesus says to this church. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall never go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, may we hear what you say to this church of Philadelphia. And may we apply it to our lives. In Christ's name. Amen. Now, you all know Philadelphia means what kind of love? Brotherly love, right? Uh, Phileo is love. Adelphos is brother. So there you go. Philadelphos, Philadelphia. It actually comes from the story of how the city was founded. There's these two brothers, Seleucius and Italius. Uh, Italius is said to have such loyalty for his brother that he was surnamed Philadelphus. That's where Philadelphia comes from. In fact, one time it said that Seleucius was away on a journey. He had been gone a long time, didn't know, nobody knew when he was coming back. They assumed he was dead because he had been gone so long. And so they tried to convince Italus to put on the crown and take kingship of the land. But he refused to do it until he knew for sure that his brother had in fact died. And when his brother came back, they told the rightful king, the story of how his brother didn't betray him, that loyalty, that brotherly love. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, Jesus identifies himself interestingly here. He says, the holy one, the true one. Why would God call himself holy and true? 
to a city of Philadelphia. Why would Jesus make a point that they know that he is the holy one, the true one? Well, like many other cities, they worship multiple deities. Zeus was one of them. They worshiped the emperor because, you know, that's just what people did in those days. They worshiped a couple of other gods as well. In fact, um, at one point, the city got so much into um, worship of Caesar uh, after the earthquake had hit. And then Caesar, uh, Tiberius, had rebuilt the city with funds from Rome that they they went by the name Neo-Caesarea for a while. New city of Caesar. Jesus reminds them he is the true one. He alone is the Holy One. He's the one with authority. Look what he says next. Who has the key of David. Now, what is the key of David? Well, think about it this way. Who has the most power? Is it the guy whose name is on the company? Well, in a way, yes. But he can't get you into any room by himself. See, because there's someone that has more power than the guy whose name is on the building. And it's the guy who has all the keys. Because without the key holder, you don't get in the door, do you? Without someone having the key, you don't have access. Without someone with the authority to unlock the door, you can't get in the door, right? Jesus says he has the key of David. It's a picture of Messiah, of David, who is the one in authority, the one in charge, the one who has access, the one who can open the door and no one can shut it. No one has the right to come behind him and shut the door that he has opened. Who can close the door and no one can open it. No one has the authority to open the door. Think about the time of Noah. Noah and his family get into the ark. What happens? God shuts the door. He has taken in those whom he will take in and he shuts the door so that those who are not in the ark are doomed. Now, was it Noah that did that? No, I wonder if Noah started hearing the cries, started hearing people pleading and wanted to open the door and tried to open the door maybe, but couldn't because God had shut it. You see, when God shuts the door, nobody opens it because nobody can open it. He's the one with the authority. But when God opens the door, don't go trying to close it. It's like the the door way back here on the backside of the nursery building that uh, that if you try to close it, it won't catch. <laughs> and it stays open. Even when you want to close it, you cannot close the door because God says, I'm leaving the door open. How foolish we are to think that we can control who comes in and out. There are some churches you walk into and it's like they may as well, they may as well put bouncers at the door because they're only going to let in who they want. Let me see your ID. You got too many tattoos. You can't come in here. Oh, Right this way, sir. You're on our list. You can come in. They act like bouncers. They act like they're going to control who can come into the church or not. Can I tell you something? God's going to bring in who he wants to bring in. Now, um, I'll I'll give you this. I get a little nervous when people are covered in tattoos. It's just anybody tough enough to get that many tattoos is, is, is worrisome. The fact of the matter is, though, when God opens the door, who are we to shut it? When God is doing his work in a person's life, someone that we may not expect, someone that we may not ever anticipate that would respond to his word, how can we, what gives us the right to say, no, you can't, stop? Who are we to say that? See, the fact is when God opens the door, no one shuts it. But when God shuts the door, no one opens it. 
You see, there are some people God shut the door to. They've rejected, 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 and they're just not listening. And we keep trying to pry, pry that door. And I'm talking about this in a missionary sense. I'm not just talking about it in the way of, of trying to live your best life or anything like that. I'm not saying, oh, oh, you don't want to open that door because that's just something God doesn't want for you. I'm saying for the person who wants to come to Christ, we should not be shutting the door. But to the person who does not want to come to Christ, we can't force the door open. You can pry at it all you want, but that thing ain't going to move. Because when God shuts the door, we can't open it. And so when you get rejected, when you've, when you've tried to pray for that family member for years or decades and they're just not responding, sometimes you just have to realize, you know, this is in God's hands. There's nothing more I can do. Now I'm going to tell you this. Don't give up until you've hit that point. Don't give up until you know God is telling you it, that's enough. You've done your part. But buddy, when it's enough, when God says, I've shut this door, we can't open it. Unfortunately, some of us are too busy trying to open doors that we shouldn't be, and some of us are too busy trying to shut doors that need to stay open. But he's not telling the church that. He's not telling the church that they shouldn't be opening doors or they shouldn't be closing doors. In fact, he's look at what he tells the church in verse 8. I know your works, which he tells every church because he knows all of their works, good and bad and sometimes ugly. Behold, I have set before you an open door. I take this to mean a couple of things. First, just like in many cities, the synagogue in Philadelphia was not very receptive to Christians and would often bar them from being in the synagogue precincts. If you were known to be a Christian, you couldn't go into the synagogue. They'd kick you out. They had their bouncers at the door. No, you're, 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 you're not a Jew. You're not welcome here. What's interesting is that God says, they may be trying to close their door. I'm opening the door for you. He's giving them an opportunity. But there's another aspect to this. Every time Paul writes about an open door, you know what he's talking about? Missions. I told you Philadelphia is a missionary city, right? They were to spread Greek culture around to the area around them. God says, I'm giving you an option, an opportunity, an open door to share the gospel all around you. You have such influence as a city. Now as a church, you can have that same kind of influence. I'm giving you an open door. I'm giving you a way. I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm giving you a door that nobody's able to shut. Because when God opens the door, you can't shut it. I know that you have but little power. There's another church that he said of that didn't have much power. Which, which church was it? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He's talking to Smyrna. In, in Smyrna, they were so poor because they had been ostracized from the community. They couldn't get anywhere. They couldn't get ahead in anything. Many of them couldn't find jobs because they weren't willing to worship the false gods of the guilds of their day. They had no power. They were the abused. They were the oppressed. They were the ones who were being walked on by the society. And the same thing is happening in Philadelphia. They don't have much power. Oh, the powers that be were blocking them out. The powers that be were preventing them from coming in. They couldn't go into the synagogue. They couldn't go into many parts of the city. They couldn't go into to fellowship with other people because they were Christians. God says, I know you don't have any power. You have little power. Interesting. The one with all the power talking to ones who have little power and telling them, I'm making a way for you. Don't you worry about your little power. I, I, I have the influence that you need. 
we look at ourselves and we say, we're, we're fat. And <laughs> we're, we're not strong and we're not able to do much. I'm not old enough. I'm not young enough. I don't have the energy that I used to have. We look at and we say, there's, there's just too many obstacles in our way. And God's saying, would you just walk through the door? The door's open. I'm giving you what you need. I'm the one supplying it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about opening the door. You don't have to worry about trying to break the lock and get in. I'm opening it for you. All you got to do is go. This is a church who has little power, trusting the one who has all power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You see, they didn't have anything else to fall back on. When you are a trapeze artist, you start with a safety net. Because when you start trapezing, I guess, you're not very good at it and you need a safety net. These folks had no safety net. And yet they were still willing to make the jump. They were still willing to trust God enough to do what he said, not deny him, stand firm, even though they had nothing else to fall back on. Do you see now why God's willing to give them the open door? Because he knows they will walk through it. Sometimes we pray and pray and pray and wait and wait and wait. And we want, we want God just to do it. And, and little while God says, well, the door's open right in front of you. Why don't you just go? With this church, he opens the door. He just says, I'm making a way. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Where have we seen that before? Smyrna, same place that was poor, but had great spiritual riches, had no, no physical power, but great spiritual power, power. The, the same, the same problems there happen here. Those Jews who think they're Jews, but they're not Jews. They're of their father, the devil. So just go back a few weeks. Replay what I said about the Jews in Smyrna (laughs) and apply it here too. They're not really following God. They're not really his people. Oh, they may be ethnically, not spiritually. They may be circumcised in the flesh, but they're not in the heart. By the way, I read the other day, you know where that phrase circumcise the heart comes from? comes from Deuteronomy. God even told his people, look, this isn't just a physical circumcision. This is a spiritual circumcision. This is a group who supposedly was doing everything they needed to do, but they didn't trust in Christ. And it's amazing how much of a difference Christ makes when you don't trust in him, because they are called here the synagogue of Satan. They're not the synagogue of God. They're not his people. They're Satan's. They're opposing what God wants to do. They say they are Jews, but they're not. They're lying. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. My mind went back to Joseph. Anybody remember the story of Joseph? Joseph has this dream. He goes and tells his brothers, y'all believe the dream I had. Oh, great. What is it now? I had this dream that all of you were bowing and worshiping me. Fast forward, I don't know, a couple decades, maybe decade or two, something like that. They try to get rid of him, decide to sell him. He goes off to Egypt, spends a few years in the slammer. That's the paraphrase. Ends up not only working for Pharaoh, but serving in a very high government position at Pharaoh's bidding. And then here come his brothers groveling on their knees at the feet of Joseph. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. I wonder if he just took a second to say, wow, this, that dream I had, this, this is it. There is coming a time. There's coming a time when God will fulfill his word. 
I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. They're supposed to be the ones that have God's love. There's coming a day where they will learn that I love you. Because you have kept my word, verse 10, about patient endurance. This is a this is not a city that gives up. And it's not a church that gives up either. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. The idea is kept ongoingly. Not just kept it once, but you continue to keep it. You don't stop keeping it. You have, you have secured the word and it is secured for the rest of time. You have kept my word. I will keep you from the hour of trial. I will keep you from what's to come. And this was a community that still remembered the earthquake. It would have been about as long ago as World War II is to us. Think back. Some of you, one or two of you may have been alive, just barely, but most of us weren't quite alive. We know stories that our parents or grandparents told us. Some of you may have even had parents serving. Um, Malcolm, shaking your head, was your, you had that in your family? Three uncles. Yeah, yeah. We still have some of a collective memory of it. It helps that we have a little bit more about World War II than some earlier wars. We have more pictures. We have a bit of video that we didn't have um, from prior wars. But the memory's starting to fade, but it's not completely gone. That's kind of the boat they're in with this earthquake. It's fading. Some of the oldest survivors are dead, just have died, or there might be a couple still left even. A few folks who were young when it happened and about ready to pass. I think this is one of the last years, if I'm not mistaken, that they expect to have any World War II survivors at the commemorative events that they're doing every five years. They expect that this past year was... Of D-Day, this is one of the last um, that they'll have with people surviving, able to be there. The The memory is still there, but it's starting to fade. They know themselves and their city is a city that's gone through great trial. And so to hear the King of Kings, the true Holy One, the one who has the key of David, say, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming, that would have been a word of peace. That would have been a word that would have encouraged them greatly. Some point to this and look at it as a promise of the church in general not going through the tribulation. We'll talk about that in future weeks, but for right now, I want to I wanna focus on what it meant to the Philadelphian church. What he's telling them is, there's coming a time, there's coming a time of trial. There's coming a time of future judgment. You don't have to worry about it. Now, we all will face the judgment seat of Christ and be judged according to our works. People who are not saved will face the great white throne of judgment and be judged according to theirs. Judgment's coming. So I don't want you to think for just one second that God is saying, oh, don't worry, you're not going to be judged. Oh, they will be judged, but they're not going to be found lacking because this is the church that patiently endures. This is the church that has little power, but yet keeps his word and keeps his name. This is a church who is faithful in the midst of persecution, faithful in the midst of trial, faithful in the midst of tribulations. Faithful in the midst of the difficulties of life, some of which are earth-shattering, some of which are very particular to the individual. This is a church that holds its ground and don't give up. I know that because 1,300 years later, it was still fighting the Ottomans when virtually everybody else had given up. The legacy that this city and specifically this church would leave behind would have impact on generations to come. Several of them 
did face persecution in the form of death. There were, I believe, 12 men from Philadelphia who were martyred with the man named Polycarp in 155 AD, killed for the same reason he was, for their faithfulness to Christ. This is a church that didn't give up. It kept doing what God wanted it to do. So he tells them, I'm coming soon. Hold fast, you have. He's not telling them, hold on to it so it doesn't disappear. He's saying, hold fast because you've got it right. There are some things that need to change because they are wrong and they need to change. But there are some things that do not need to change because they're right. Don't change the things that are right. Hold them fast. Grip them tight. White knuckle those babies. Don't let them go. Hold on no matter what. Because that is what is keeping this church faithful. This church is faithful because it refuses to let go of its God, refuses to let go of His works, refuses to let go of His name. Don't let it go. Hold fast what you have. What do they have? They have Him. Don't let Him go so that no one may seize your crown. You hold fast because I've promised and I'm going to deliver. The one who conquers. I love this part. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Remember, this was a city devastated by earthquake. They needed some assurance that they were secure. God says, you're going to be a pillar in my temple. You're not going anywhere. Neither, never shall he go out of it. I'm keeping you. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Philadelphia, I mentioned this once. I didn't mention how many times. Philadelphia actually went by a number of different names in its history. Short history as it was, they went through several different names, surnames and um, other kinds of names. And I mentioned one of them, New City of Caesar. God says, I'm going to give you a better name, a name that's not based on some fairy tale, a name that's not based on just something that a Caesar had done for you, a name that's not based on the gods that you're worshiping here. I'm going to give my church a name that is an indestructible name, a name that is a permanent name that will stay through the ages. I will give them my name. And not only my name, I'm going to give them the name of my city, the name of my God. I'm going to put on them a name that will last. And so for this city that had had multiple names, they're going to finally get their real name. You know, a name's kind of an identity too. We find our identity in Christ, don't we? We don't find it anywhere else. We don't find it in the things that we do. We don't find it in how we make our money. We don't find it in the family that we have. We really get honest with ourselves. The place we find our identity is Christ. He says, I'm going to give him my name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia shows me two things. It shows me, number one, that a church that's doing what it ought to be doing will have will have influence. Even when it doesn't have influence, it will have influence. The church doesn't have to have big names. It doesn't have to have a big budget. It doesn't have to have great big buildings. It doesn't have to have notoriety. It doesn't have to have anything that gives authority by the earth's standards. All it needs is to be faithful to Christ and it will have the influence that God wants it to have. God will open the doors and he'll do the work. Um, He chooses to do it through us, but he doesn't need us to be big shots. He just needs us to be faithful. Second thing that it shows me is that that influence cannot be overcome as long as we keep on 
We will never fail as long as we remain faithful. There, there, there are people that try things and they, they're not working and so they stop doing them and they never make it. Uh, we make, y'all don't know this. Y'all do know this, but you may not have thought about it before. When, I know it's been so long that you've probably forgotten this, but when Congress actually passes a budget, they have to do so with a 10-year window. Okay? I know it's been so long since Congress has passed a budget <laughs> that, 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 that seems ridiculous, but they have to plan out for 10 years. In the 90s, when Bill Clinton was president, they passed a budget that would balance out within that 10-year period. There was a budget that they passed. Congress passed it. President Clinton signed it into law that, that the United States would spend the money that it took in according to the budget. Yeah, that didn't happen, did it? Not in reality. The budget did. It passed. It was signed. It became, it became official. But we, we didn't stick to that budget. We have the tendency to quit on things. We don't, we don't persevere to the end like we used to. I'm amazed that our Constitution has lasted as long as it has, because really, 200 plus years for a document that governs an entire country, that, that's a pretty big deal. See, when we do something right and we stick with it, we're going to see results. But we have the tendency to jump off the bandwagon because it's hard. It's difficult. It's time consuming. It's expensive. And we never see the result. We never see the balanced budget in the 10th year because we don't make it to year 10. We don't even make it to year five. We throw that out and we do a whole nother plan that goes in a completely different direction. Or we don't do a plan and we just keep kicking the can down the road. We live in today and assume that that's all there is and we lose sight of the bigger picture. The bigger picture that Philadelphia reminds us of is that if we are faithful to what God has called us to do, we will not fail. We will be conquerors. Not because we're awesome, because He's promised. He's the one who's opened the door. He's the one that gives the authority. He's the one that gives the power. He's the true one, the holy one with the key of David. It's all because of Him. And if we just remain faithful to Him, church, we can't fail. That's what I see when I look at Philadelphia. I see a legacy of faithfulness that doesn't surrender, that doesn't compromise, that stays faithful to the very end. Church, let's be Philadelphia. And let's stay faithful to the very end. Father, I pray that we, like this church, would be faithful to you. Help us not deny your name. Help us not lose your word. Help us not quit, not surrender. No matter how difficult the circumstance in front of us may be, remind us that you're the one who opens the door, that we may walk through in obedience to you. And Lord, when we run into the door because it's shut, and we're not looking where we're going. Help us have the sense to turn around and find an open door. Seek your will. Not try to pry open something that's locked shut. Not try to fight against you. Help us not look at the open doorway and say, there's a breeze coming through and try to shut it. Lord, help us be smart enough to follow your paths, to walk in your ways, to remain faithful to you, faithful to the very end. Lord, we love you. Help us honor you by our obedience. In Christ's name, amen.